0: Well, good, morning. good morning. I give honor to our great, our worthy God who alone is deserving of all praise. And I magnify Him, the one eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I bless Him in the trinity of His sacred persons. I'm thankful for the privilege to be with you, my brothers and sisters, and have the opportunity to be back. It's been a, a few months, I believe, but it's always good to be here at Spring Lake, and I'm grateful for the opportunity extended to to come and to be together good renew fellowship with you and it's especially good to see our brother and sister Renato and Cherie we're thankful for their fellowship in the gospel over many years and uh, it's indeed an encouragement before they go back uh, to have this opportunity to see them one more time and uh, it's it's been a few years but we're grateful uh, for their fellowship and for God's goodness and As well for the part as our brother mentioned in prayer that this church has had and they're being sent to the field and laboring in our brother's native Italy and I know what seems like to Cherie as well, a native country even though your birthplace was here I believe sister, right? And yet for so many years you have labored in Italy and been in that country. We're grateful for God's work through them and for the building up of His church and His churches there in Italy. Glad to have this honor. We ought to ask you to turn, please, in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. And I'd like to invite your attention to those last words of that chapter, the 16th verse. But as we read it, I'll go back to verse 14 just to give a, a moderate bit of context to that portion as we look together at it. First uh, Timothy chapter three again, verse sixteen will be our focus. But in verses fourteen and fifteen, we find the apostle stating his reason for writing to Timothy in this letter. And these, really, in some measure, these words speak of, I think, well, of the pastoral epistles that we have clustered together here: First and Second Timothy and Titus, as they reflect something of God's heart and God's mind through the apostle for his churches and the uh, desire He had so that His people might be led and know how to conduct the affairs of God's house. So we read there in verse 14 and then read to the, to the end of the chapter, verse 16. First Timothy again, chapter 3. These things write out unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We want to think together about these words of verse 16 this morning. By way of a title, I'd give you this. Something we can all agree on. May it be that that would be the case by God's grace this morning. Let's pause and pray and ask God's blessing again on His Word. Father, we bow in the name of Thy worthy Son, the one of whom we read, in these words that thou didst give to Thy servant, the Apostle Paul. Father, we cannot but imagine that his heart burned with fervor and desire and a sense of Your glory as he wrote these words by the inspiration of Thy Spirit. Father, we ask You that we too could burn with the sense of wonder, amazement, at the glory of the Gospel. Father, as we declare it, would You aid us by Your Spirit, and would You aid as well, my brothers and sisters, who hear Thy Word this morning. Father, may the Lord Jesus be exalted by Thy Spirit and His power. Father, may You be exalted in Your own strength. As only, Father, You can not by the arm of flesh, Lord, that fails that You do that. May You be pleased to glorify Yourself, to honor Your Son. And Father, we pray that You would, in magnifying Him, make us more like Him. In His worthy name, Amen. Well, again, we give you by way of a title something we can all agree on. We draw that from the really the first part of verse 16 where Paul says, and without controversy, I want to uh, ask you to Think with me about that. But we consider something of the season we're in and I think these words are appropriate to that. I realize that Christmas is not by all believers acknowledged to be a, a time of, of uh, Christian celebration and as well of even Christ's birth. And yet at the same time I'm glad for the opportunity that it affords that we can remember Him. But not only that, in the, uh, in the background of what you might hear on the radio or in the mall or certain places to hear hymns and carols of our Savior being sung. I realize a lot of the fair is secular, a lot of the fair is not oriented toward Him, but even that, there's that which will come out that glorifies Him. I'm glad for that. And I pray that God would honor His Son in that way. We want to reflect, though, particularly on what we think about with regard to the glory of Christ and not only that, the glory of His incarnation, the glory of the work He accomplished. When we think of His incarnation, we think of the reality of Him becoming flesh. The words of John, well summarized in John one fourteen, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. That's what we see in the enfleshment, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. God become flesh. The Word who was God, with God in the beginning, has become flesh. He's, he's taken hit upon Himself our nature apart from sin by a virgin womb. And He's done that wonderful thing and Paul here speaks about that. He's been specifically in this chapter in 1 Timothy 3 directing Timothy concerning some things that he wanted to be set in order at Ephesus. Those things included. Uh, among others. He's already talked in chapter 2 about the, the the priority of prayer in the church and how he exhorts first of all that prayer, supplications, giving of thanks, intercession be made for all men. As he does that, I believe there's a particular view to again the governing of the Lord's church. How he wants God's people to realize that his house is to be a house of prayer. But then he gives as well direction for officers within his church. He speaks specifically about business bishops or overseers in chapter 3, verse 1. And he talks about what we would think of as pastors and and what God's demand or requirement for them is. And then he shifts over later in the chapter to the office of deacon, to what God designs for those who would render service in the church. And often we associate it with things that would be more of a a mundane or, or worldly character, but at the same time, the bar is high. For Paul is telling... Timothy, make sure that you have spiritual men, men who love the truth, men who will be able to serve faithfully. And and then as he leaves that, he speaks specifically of why he's writing. These things, the things that I've spoken already, the things that I've written to you, I write, hoping to come to you shortly. But if I tarry long, if I'm delayed from coming, I want you to be able to know how to govern, how the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth is to be conducted. Now as he mentions the church, he speaks of it in a threefold way the church of the living God, but he also calls it the house of God. This is the place where the family gathers, if you will. You and I who are His barren ones, His His born ones, who have been by His Spirit birthed through the Gospel, through the incorruptible seed of the Word. We gather as the house of God, and we do so knowing that we're the church, the, 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 the assembly of the living God. But not only that, the apostle adds, the pillar and ground of the truth. And those words, I believe, almost naturally give way to what the Apostle goes on to express in verse 16. Because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. What a better time than that for the Spirit of God through the pen of Paul and as well for Paul himself to express something of that truth. To declare again what he so loved to declare, even though throughout the Roman Empire as he traveled taking that good news, it so often got him into trouble. It was Ralph Barnard who said, wherever Paul went, it seemed a riot or revival broke out, sometimes both. And there were those things, those disturbances that the Gospel brought him into because of the fact that it's a message that is not welcome among men. To the Jew, it was a stumbling block to the Greek foolishness. But Paul knew as well, to those who are called, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. So Paul went, by the help of God, unceasingly preaching that message. He loved to rehearse it. He made it known again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you that Gospel which I preached unto you, by which also you are saved, which also you are saved, by which also you are saved. And here he declares it again to Timothy. But he does it in brief compass. Some believe that in verse 16, the Apostle is actually making reference to a hymn that was sung in the churches in those days. Sung among God's people. There is a cadence and a, a, almost a, a rhythmic, metrical character that marks it. But in any event, these words present to us an excellent synopsis of what we can celebrate as believers. Not only at this time of the year, but throughout the year the good news of what God has done in His Son. As we we think about that, let's just again focus particularly on verse 16. And I'll read it again in your hearing. The Apostle says, "...and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world." received up into glory. I want us to think first of all of the in, in this verse of, of some things by way of definition. When we consider the, the words that Paul uses in describing what he gives here in verse 16, he uses the phrase, the handle, the mystery of godliness. In using that, it would be good to understand what a mystery is in the Scriptures, and what a mystery isn't. Now, we referred to this some time back when we were with you in Matthew 13. But I'd like to rehearse it for you again, especially in the light of the fact that it appears here in verse 16. In, in the word mystery, we have something that isn't commonly seen in our day. When we think of something being shrouded in mystery, we think of it as an unknown. Something that is by, by no means uh, understood. And there's that element about the word mysterion here, the Greek word mystery. But there's another element that often isn't present in the word as we use it. If you would keep your place at 1 Timothy 3 and go back to the words of Paul in Romans 16, please. And those words of benediction that conclude the book of Romans. In Romans 16, the apostle says this, and if, if you'll notice there, verses 25 and 26, and we'll particularly call your attention to the last part of verse 25 and first part of verse 26 as we read it, but we'll read the whole of it. Verse 25 again of Romans 16. Now to Him that is the power to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Notice the use of the word mystery there in verse 25. But notice as the Apostle speaks of it, and he talks about the Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, he says this is according to or consistent with the revelation, the unveiling of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of their lasting God, made known to all nations. In other words, we have something that previously was unrevealed, but now it's been made known. And that is the word mysturion, the word mystery in, in the New Testament. It speaks of something Formerly unknown. But now God's been pleased to reveal. God's been pleased to disclose. And and that is its use throughout the New Testament from Matthew 13 onward to Revelation 1 as John writes about the Lord Jesus in that blessed vision of Him in His glorified state. And that word is used in 1 Timothy 3, I think similarly, to speak of what was unknown in times past, but what God has now made known. Now, a little less clearly is that seen, I believe, in the words of 1 Timothy 3.16, but the the, the, uh, essence of it is still there. Now you can find that thought as well in the words of Paul in Ephesians 3, 4, and 5 of mystery. Something not made known in ages past, but now disclosed to His holy apostles and prophets. And so there's that thing of mystery that, that is used here and in, in by way of definition what God had not fully disclosed in times past Oh, He had made known that God would be manifest in the flesh for that child born of the virgin womb is Emmanuel. God with us. But the details as we see it fleshed out in the various items of First 16 of First Timothy 3. They weren't fully revealed as we now know them. That the one who would come as Messiah, God in the flesh, would in a period unforeseen by the prophets be preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Those things that relate to what the prophets did not anticipate. What our Lord Jesus spoke of as the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew 13. That was something that they did not foresee, and yet Paul here is able to declare. And that's one word we'd like to define, but there's that other word, godliness. Usabeia in Greek. The word is a word that is used several times, not only in First Timothy, but also in Second Timothy and Titus. It's a key word. Paul will write to Titus, and he'll, as he'll speak about Titus and, and the faith, and he'll speak of the, the uh, faith of God's elect, he will also speak of the, uh, the truth which is according to godliness. And the idea is that the truth that Paul was one who proclaimed, he declared, that truth is a truth that is productive of godliness. Usobeia is the Greek word. Some would translate it generally religion. But it speaks of what God, by His grace, is producing in His people who have been made receptive to the Gospel. And it all centers in this mystery. It all centers in the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what Jesus has done. Now, that, that's something we sometimes dissociate from the gospel. We think of the Gospel as really being the, the the launching pad. But then, other, deeper truth leads us into godliness. But Paul doesn't make that disconnect. For you see, everything about the truth of God's Word stands with its hub, with its center, in the Gospel. I think about Brother McGuire when I consider that. Brother McGuire made the statement, I'm sure you all will remember The issue before the church is God. In other words, we never get away from the truth of the Scriptures with regard to the basic statement of who God is in our prayer, and rather the prayer of our brother, Renato, I I was blessed as you just kept a while there, brother, on the person of our God. Too often we rush into His presence and we don't worship We don't adore Him. We don't magnify Him. Everything that we really deduce in the way of what we should be and ought to be flows out of who He is. And if it were not His good pleasure, as the Father who purposed His grace and purposed our salvation, if it were not His good pleasure, we would never come to what ultimately we will one day be Because it was only according to His purpose that God by His Spirit will reproduce His Son in us. And He'll do that by virtue of the work of the Son who accomplished what He did at the cross and in His resurrection and in His ascension. And that's why Paul clusters himself, as it were. It seems if he's ever away from the Gospel, he says, I can't stay here long. I've got to get back to Gospel ground. And you see, what produces godliness, Christ-likeness in us, is the truth of who Jesus is. The reality of gospel truth that can impress our hearts and make our souls to love Him. Well, that's not to be a message in itself, so let me move on. Let me ask you to notice not only those definitions, but the description real quick before we think about the mystery itself. Paul uses two words to describe it without controversy and great. Now, the word uh, without controversy is in the Greek Testament, homologomenos. It means, if you wanted to coin a word in English, confessedly. Confessedly. I like the way our King James translates it without controversy, because it speaks about the good news and the fact that there's no contest among God's people about this message. There's, there's no controversy with those who believe the truth concerning what it states about Christ. Now, there, be, there may be those who controvert it. We, we uh, know, know that that statement that begins it, God was manifest in the flesh, would be controverted by many. In, in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, in our own country, Unitarians arose that denied the deity of the Lord Jesus, denied the Trinity. And uh, one of them lived when we lived up in Pennsylvania. And we know we've lived there twice. I jokingly say Terry and I were foreign missionaries up there, but... Uh, we we we, uh, we we lived near the Susquehanna River in both cases, just north of where we lived last time in the Liverpool area. Was the home of Joseph Priestley. He was a scientist, but he was also a Unitarian. On one occasion it said that Joseph Priestley, who as a Unitarian ministered in a Unitarian church, not that there could be such a thing, mind you, but but he he told his brother who was an Orthodox preacher to come and preach for him. And he said, don't preach anything controversial. So guess what he preached? (laughs) When he got there that morning, he stated, my brother has asked me not to preach anything controversial this morning. So in keeping with his wishes, I'm going to preach from 1 Timothy 3.16 which reads, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And he preached the gospel of Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. You see, that's a description of this mystery. It's not controvertible. I know men will controvert it, but ultimately, when all is said and done in the final analysis from the standpoint of truth and of the judgment of God, you can't controvert this message. You can't stand against it. You cannot deny who is its centerpiece nor can you deny what He has done in His virgin birth, in His death, in His perfect life, in His resurrection. Can't controvert it. Not only that, Paul says it's great as well. Would you expect it to be otherwise? He uses the Greek word mega here. We get that megaphone, you know. Great phone means voice in Greek. Megaphone means great voice. Something that amplifies. Uh, We think about metropolises. Well, we even have megalopolises. When I was growing up, I learned that word. That's the word mega here. Paul uses that word to describe it because in your understanding of this rightly, the only thing you can come away saying is this is great. This message, this mystery is great. And so the Apostle speaks of it. Let's think about the mystery now itself and its content, in those distinctives that mark it. In what ways is it great? Well, the first statement that we find about the mystery says this, God was manifest in the flesh. The mystery is great, in its revelation. For as we've seen already in looking at Isaiah 7.14 last hour. When Isaiah was given that word to Ahaz into the house of David. When the house of David was threatened by that confederacy of Syria. And Ephraim or Israel. He was told. Behold. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold a virgin shall conceive. And bear a son. And she shall call. They shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. That one who is born is none other than God manifest in the flesh. That's the person of the Savior in the glory of His manifestation. Who He is is marked by not only humanity, but deity. I I love the way the Savior pressed that to those of His day, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 22 and as well in Mark chapter 12. When our Lord asked them what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now the pivotal question is sonship with regard to who he is in his person. What think ye of Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answered, uh, as students of Scripture, Question mark. they answered, why he's David's son. And they expected a check, plus, or a smiley face from the rabbi, I believe. But he stopped him a minute. He said, if he's David's son, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David in the Spirit call him Lord, how is he then his son? The problem for those scribes, those Pharisees was in their works religion which they felt they'd satisfied God's righteous claims by, they failed to see that they needed a more than man Savior. A son of David's Savior was enough. But they needed one who had a sonship beyond the sonship that David could give. They needed a Savior who had the sonship that God alone could give. They needed, in other words, a Savior who was none other than God's eternal Son in His deity, as well as David's Son in His humanity. And they failed to plumb that. They failed to understand that because their own lack of a sense of sin had led them to refuse, to, to fail to see... Any need for a Savior who would be divine. And they failed to see that whole realm of revelation in the Old Covenant Scriptures that spoke of the fact that Messiah would be deity. That He would be God. And so, Paul celebrates here in these words as he speaks of the greatness of the mystery of godliness. The the, the mystery is great in its revelation and its manifestation that God was manifest in the flesh. In some measure, so great was the attempt to undo this that even in some of our Greek manuscripts, we have not God, but He Who. Which doesn't make a lot of sense. But even if it were true, it would mean that the mystery of godliness, that is, the mystery of our religion, is Christ. And you'd expect that the mystery of any religion, the centerpiece of any religion, would be the deity they worship. So we're back again at God manifest in the flesh. But I have no problem with the fact that those manuscripts on which our King James Version is based are those manuscripts that reflect God's own preserved as well as inspired word for us. And that being true, we celebrate the child who's been born as being the child who is none other than God Himself. We bow at His cradle, if you will. Come and worship, as our brothers mentioned already this morning. That's why we're here. We're here to worship Christ. Christ who lays claim to the titles of deity. Christ who presents in Himself all the attributes of deity. Those are His. And we can say, as we think of the, the, uh, the, the wonder of the incarnation, we can say what Mr. Wesley did as he spoke of that babe. In the womb, God contracted to a span span that long and yet within the womb of the virgin that babe is none other than God himself now some mock it we marvel at it we bow and we honor him who could say before Abraham was I am and he says that and those Jews recognize what he meant for they took up stones to stone him but we recognize he is indeed the I am we recognize indeed, as He would go on to say in John 10, I am the Good Shepherd. And the Jews would have recognized that the Jehovah said, I am the Shepherd of Israel. Again and again, we recognize His claims. And as well, His substantiation of His claims by His laying down His life and taking it up again. In every way, we see the truth, the reality of the fact that Jesus Messiah is God manifest in the flesh. So the mystery is great and it's revelation. And brothers and sisters, I tell you we could camp here for more than one Sunday just on this phrase, this statement. The wonder of it. The amazing character of this one who split history. And I again I appreciate this time of year because people continually want to get away at this day of pluralism and and, uh and uh Relativism. They, they want to get away from any idea of the truth of the Gospel and yet every end of the year they keep getting called back to it because there's a season called Christmas. And whatever they want to do to get away from it, they got to end the year with it and they'll try to change it and say Happy Holidays and yet they'll play on their radio station songs and they say, Merry Christmas to you. Pardon my singing there. But again and again... Why? Because this one split history. You can change it to CE and BCE if you want to. But it's still BC and AD in measure. Whether common era and before the common era. But either way, we still see one whose person, one whose figure split history. Why is that? Because God was manifest in the flesh. Who is He? That's who He is. Wrapped in our deity. Plainly seen to be who He is. Let's move on though if we may. And notice the mystery is not only great in its revelation or manifestation. It's also great in its vindication or its justification. For the Apostle writes, as he says, God was manifest in the flesh. He then adds, justified in the Spirit. Now the word justified we know, is associated with our salvation as God declares us righteous on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And here the word justified is used similarly not in regard to Christ being a sinner, but in regard to Christ being declared right by the Spirit. That is vindicated. In other words, there were those who, in the days of His flesh, they mocked our Lord. There were those who thought him to be a blasphemer, thought him to be an imposter, thought him maybe to be a prophet, but they had no understanding of who he was. But all along the way, the Spirit of God was vindicating the person of God's dear Son, justifying, declaring Him right. And why was that? Well, because in a distinctive way, as the prophets looked forward to the days of Messiah, they knew that it would also be days of the Spirit when, when, when the, that those days would come that they longed for in uh, the revelation of God's fullness of His kingdom. As they looked forward to that day, they knew that it would be inaugurated by Messiah, the Son of David, but they also knew that they would be days of the Spirit's work in a distinctive and unique way. And so, uh, why would it be unusual that if Messiah, when the Messiah appears... That the Spirit would be also so very active in the ministry of Messiah. In fact, He was even active in his, in his conception, was He not? Our brother read the words of Luke 1 this morning. How did Gabriel explain that mystery when He appeared in the sixth month of John's conception and, and gestation? When He appeared and brought that news, how did He express the miracle? how shall this be seen i know not a man mary questioned and he was he was he gave her the response <coughs> excuse me the holy ghost shall come upon thee the power of the high shall overshadow thee therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of god the spirit of god in a way that I cannot understand, but I know apart from the aid of human seed passing to the womb of Mary, the Spirit of God moved on that egg within her, and the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived supernaturally, powerfully, amazingly. But not only that, shortly after, as Mary had received that Annunciation, She went to visit Elizabeth. And you remember what happened? I don't know when she got to the hill country of Judea there where Elizabeth lived. If she knocked on the door, if she hollered, Hey, cuz! I've come to see you! This is Mary! But whatever way the salutation reached Elizabeth's ears, Elizabeth said as she spoke, well, let's just look at it in Luke chapter 1. We'll go a little beyond where our brother read and uh, notice the words that that are spoken. Get it through the eye gate as well as the ear gate and see the Holy Ghost declaring Jesus who had been conceived in the womb of Mary. He, he's showing Him to be right. Show, vindicating Him. Let's read beginning at verse 41, please. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation, again, Luke 1 41, brothers and sisters. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Notice Elizabeth's words here as she declares, as Mary has come to visit, she declares not only the blessedness of Mary among women, but also the blessedness of the fruit of her womb. And then she asks the question, verse 43 Whence is this to me? From what does this come to me? That the mother of my Lord should visit me. Notice the phraseology. Of Elizabeth there, the mother of my Lord. Now, Elizabeth was a God fearing monotheistic Jew. And yet she refers to that babe in the womb as being her Lord, the mother of my Lord. But not only that, she says, as soon as the voice of your salutation reached my ears, the babe leapt in my womb. What do we know about John the Baptist? According to the words earlier in Luke 1, he was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. May I say it reverently, brothers and sisters? When the voice of Mary's greeting reached Elizabeth's ears, John did a Holy Ghost jig inside of Mary. Why? The Spirit of God was affirming. The Spirit of God was declaring right. The Spirit of God was vindicating God's Holy Son. We follow through what Dr. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. We see our Savior in the temple. And remember, He's gone up with His parents. Probably His bar mitzvah. He's, he's uh, going up as a son of the commandment now. And as He does that, His parents think He's with the caravan and they leave Him. Or excuse me, His mother. I, I, I'll, I'll be careful there. And his foster father, shall I say? They 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 leave him, and, and he, they go back and find him after three days, and he's in the temple talking with the doctors and the lawyers, and those who hear him are marveling at him. Th- those learned ones in the law, those ones who had been taught and as well had taught the law, they're marveling at him. And remember, Mary says, went, uh, says to him. Uh, Did you not know that your father and I were seeking you? And he says, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? That shows in his young years he already had a consciousness of his distinctiveness of the Son of God and his humanity. But notice what's going on in the temple. The doctors and lawyers are being wowed out by him. As we said in the 70's, they're saying wow and then they're saying it backwards. Wow. They have all these things that he's teaching. A young man who's instructing them the, the PhDs and the THDs of Israel. Why is that? Well, again, it's because in his humanity the Spirit of God has come upon him as Isaiah said. Chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah says the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. The Spirit of the fear of the Lord, the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord and would make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Now I know in his deity he he knew the Father intimately from old eternity and yet in his humanity the Spirit of God rested on him in a unique and distinctive way and in doing so made him of quick understanding and there at that age he could instruct the PhDs and the THDs because the Spirit of God was vindicating him. But then as well at his baptism, we see the Spirit of God declaring him to be right vindicated. And for as he comes to a baptism that John recognizes is inordinate, it's not I who should baptize you, but it's you who should be baptized of me. Suffer it to be so, our Lord says, for Thus, in this matter, it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. This is God's righteous plan, and John does it. And as he places him under the baptismal water, not only does the Father's voice speak from heaven, "This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased," but the Spirit of God does something. We have no 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 uh, word of Scripture that He does otherwise. He assumes a bodily form as a dove and descends upon our Lord. Vindicating him. Later, our Lord in John 5 would say to the Jews who questioned him about his miracle, they would say, He would say, You've neither seen the Father's form nor heard his voice. The, the, the Lord Jesus had the Spirit of God testify. In his miracles, it was the same way as God had said in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, I will put my spirit upon him as he went about doing good, healing all the repress of the devil. How did he do that? By the work of the Spirit of God. God anointed Him with the Spirit. God did that. Now realize again, in His deity, He could have done that, but in His humanity, Christ was energized by the Spirit. And all of those things, those miracles were testimonies to who He was. Especially those distinctive miracles that Isaiah 35 had told would happen when God came to save His people. Then the eyes of the blind would be opened. Then the ears of the deaf would stop. Then the tongue of the dumb would sing. Then the lame man would leap like like a harp. And those things happened like a deer. Those happened as, as our Savior appeared. And those works were done by the power of the Spirit. As He says in Luke 11, the finger of God, but He says in Matthew 12, speaking about His casting out demons, if I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The Spirit vindicating Christ, showing who He was by His miracles. But that testimony was rejected by the Jews and they nailed Him to a cross as they rejected Him. But then the final vindication came on that third day morning. As Paul says in the words of Romans 1.3, he speaks of the Gospel. He says concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, of the seed of David, declared to be according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, the Son of God. The resurrection becomes, if you will, that statement of the Spirit of God in which Christ is vindicated in His Sonship as the Son of God, and shown to be God. Shown to be God manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit as He raised Him from the dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Spirit of holiness, was shown to be, declared to be. The, the idea of the Greek word there in Romans 1, foraphirizo, is the word, literally our word horizon comes from it. To set the bounds. To show the bounds. The Lord Jesus Christ was shown to be the one who is God himself, God the Son, the Spirit of God vindicated him in that way and declared him to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, and in that way he was justified in the Spirit. Go back with me quickly to First Timothy 3:16, if you would, and notice that next statement, The mystery of godliness is great, not only its revelation or manifestation, not only in its vindication or justification but also in its observation. For we see that this One, God manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, was seen of angels. And here again, just as the Spirit of God is seen throughout the totality of our Lord's incarnate life, so angels are seen. And the angel Gabriel announced his birth. When he was born, the angels showed up in mass to chorus his birth to tell the glory of the birth, to announce to the shepherds, but then to light up the skies and to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. They were declaring, they were announcing the reality of who He was. And I believe they were with Him in His boyhood. To use the words of Psalm 91 that were misquoted by the evil one at the temptation, they were there to keep Him from dashing His foot against a rock. They were there to providentially guard Him in His boyhood. They were present, I believe, as well in uh, His ministry. Uh, not, Not because of any reference I can give you directly from Scripture, but because of the fact that Peter in 1 Peter 1 speaks about the angels and says, of our salvation and of the good news which things the angels desire to look into. I believe, in other words, there was a holy wonder that marked them as the one whom they would worshipped had now become a man. And in His humanity, He walked among men. We know that as He prayed in the garden, Dr. Luke tells us, as He asked, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thine be done. As He prayed that, and he sweat great drops of blood. An angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. I believe they were present at the crucifixion. Here's why: because when he was arrested, and Peter drew that sword—sword, excuse me—to to kill Malchus, he wasn't a good swordsman, though he only got an ear. Our Savior told him, "Put your sword up. Do you not know that I could call?" to my Father, and He would presently send twelve legions of angels. A legion in Rome had 6,000 men. Uh, we think He could have called 10,000 angels. If you wanted to be more technically precise, we could say it wouldn't fit the meter too well. He could have called 72,000 angels. One angel slew 185,000 men in Sennacherib's army. What would 72,000 angels have done to this world if He, if he called them? I believe they were ready. But he did not, thank God. He did not. Instead, he drank that cup of suffering that should have been mine. That would have taken me to hell forever. That I would have borne, not not for, not for the space of Him and His eternal Person on the cross, I would have borne forever under the wrath of God, rightly. But he drank it and drank it dry, thank God, through His blessed work. And then the angels were present that morning. Mourn of His resurrection. They got there before the women, remember. The women thought they got there early. There was still dark, but they got there earlier. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He's not here. He's alive. They saw Him as He went up to heaven. And they said to, the, to the, His apostles, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus is taken from you shall return in like manner as you've seen Him go. They'll be present, brothers and sisters, when when He comes again. He'll be coming with the holy angels as well as with His people. What a blessed thing to think about. Here's the beauty of it. Paul says he was seen of angels. Go back with me to Isaiah 6 real quick. Think with me about what Isaiah says when he speaks of the year that King Uzziah died. You remember... How Isaiah says that there was that special order of angelic being, the seraphim, who were praising Him, hymning His praise. They were saying, some believe antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as they were saying that, singing that, now these seraphim, they're not your everyday angel. They're a high order of angel. Probably the same as the cherubim. They have special duty around the throne of God. and They have six wings, Isaiah records. With two they fly, with two they cover their feet, and with two they veil their faces. In the presence of the King, in effect, they say, we're not worthy to look on His glory. Here's to me the glory of this statement. He was seen of angels. When He became a man, and as it were, His deity was shielded by His humanity. They finally got to look on Him. They finally got to see Him. I don't want to press that beyond what I could, but there was that amazement, that wonder that marked them as they saw the Son of God in His flesh. And they, as angelic beings, saw Him fully. Let's go on to the next statement there in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. He was preached unto the Gentiles. This is good news for something that speaks of, again, what I think marks part of the mystery of Messiah in His coming, in His rejection, but in His ultimate reign in this present age. Instead of that reign coming immediately, as it seems the Old Testament prophets had anticipated there was, there's that period of time that's now extended over 2,000 years where the Word has been preached. The good news about this mystery has gone out to the, to the earth. And, and there are those who have preached it throughout the nations. And it continues to go to those who have yet not heard. But He's preached unto the Gentiles. The mystery is great in its proclamation I'm glad for the long suffering of God. I, I read about it this morning in Second Peter 3, one of my tracks of Bible reading. The long suffering of God that has not brought things to conclusion. I realize that scoffers learn, love to do what Peter mentions in the first part of that third chapter, Second Peter. They love to scoff and say, Where's the promise of His coming? Well, as I may have told you before, I'm glad He didn't come before 1973. I'd have been out. But His mercy held the door of long suffering open and I was brought in by His grace. Some of you got in later. Some of you may have got in earlier. But the long suffering of the Lord means that this mystery is preached unto the Gentiles, declared to sinners so that the gospel might be heard. As Our brother and sister go back to Italy. Godspeed as you go back and preach to the Gentiles. Preach to the nations. That word. I'm glad for the fact that it's come to us Gentiles, aren't you? Oh, as uh, far as I know, my heritage is Anglo-Saxon. That's what Morris is. it got a little bit of a French twist with, uh, I guess, the Norman invasion. But my heritage is Anglo-Saxon. If you read about those Angles and those Saxons, you'll find they weren't savory Just about every race of man, every nation of man was savage. What happened? He was preached into the Gentiles and what has the gospel done? I say it reverently, the gospel has done a taming work for savages. The impact of the gospel, even in our society where we've we've squandered so much of the biblical stock of capital that we've had in our land, even here... Thank God for the continued impact of the Gospel and of the Scriptures in our society culturally. That, that, that even though those who deny the Gospel as skeptics, I don't want to call them liberal anymore because most liberals aren't too liberal. You see lately, they're not liberal at all. They don't believe you should be able to think as a conservative. But, but those skeptics, though they deny the Gospel, they don't realize that the only reason they have any morality is because of what the Gospel's left Brothers and sisters, that's because this message has been preached and everywhere it goes it makes an impact. Everywhere it goes there have been changed lies because He's been preached into the Gentiles. But not only that, believed on in the world. And that's the real kicker for the mystery. You see, He can be preached. That in itself is a miracle. But for Him to be believed on in the world, that takes another miracle. For you and I who hear Him preach to believe on Him, that takes a resurrection. <clears throat> I remember years ago when we lived in Burlington, or actually over in Guilford County, crossed the line, there gospel church parson The Spear family was singing down, I think it was at the Church of the Nazarene on... Uh, it won't come to you. It's, it's in Graham. Hanford, no, not Hanford. I'm sorry. We went to Hiram. Spear family. Papa Spear was still around then. They sang your southern gospel music and I enjoyed some of it very much. Some of it, I believe, sadly, doesn't have much gospel in it, but this one did. They sang a song that day that said, I've had a resurrection. And I said, Amen! Because you see, for the one who was preached among the Gentiles to believe be believed on in the world, you have to have a resurrection. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. That's what Paul celebrated in Ephesians 2:1. He said, You hath he quickened, who were dead and in trespassing and sin. In other words, grace raised us. So that we were given faith and repentance to believe and embrace Him who's been preached among the Gentiles. Apart from that, no son or daughter of Adam would believe. But we preach because we too have had a resurrection. We preach because we have been brought to faith. I mentioned Brother Ward earlier this morning. Sister Ward particularly. I think last hour... uh, we used to sing a song in the Sovereign Grace Conference that Brother Ward hosted out in both Oak Ridge and then in Lexington. That song was, He Made a Believer, A Believer Out of Me. And I don't know if you ever heard Black Church organ, but Black Church organ will make the house rock. And We'd sing that song and the house would rock. But the song said something I know is true. He made a believer, a believer out of me. You see, I wasn't believing material. I was cut from the wrong cloth. But grace intervened. And grace raised me. Grace gave me a new birth and a new nature. And by that new nature, I had faith that was given me by which I could embrace Him. And that's another aspect of the greatness of the mystery. Not only is He preached among the Gentiles, but He's believed on in the world. And then finally, that last element. The mystery is great in His exaltation or glorification. And that is, He was received up into glory. And this was in fulfillment of the Father's Word. The Father said, the Lord Jesus' words, Matthew 22, we referred to earlier, Psalm 110.1, the, the Lord said unto my Lord, David wrote, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's been glorified. He's been exalted. He's been received up to glory. It's great ultimately in that reception to glory that He received because the Father called Him to come and sit. You see, when He left heaven, He knew He was going back and He already had the Father's Word as to why He would come back. You don't just forge into God's presence. But the Father had already left the Word for Him when you finish. Come and sit at my right hand. We see in Daniel 7 that glorious vision of the Ancient of Days. After the kingdom of men are surveyed, we see that glorious vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man comes to receive from the Father a kingdom that will never end. What do we see that's so marvelous there? Well, The Son of Man goes right into the Father's presence. Myriads of angels and holy ones are worshiping Him, bowing before Him. But the Son of Man walks right up to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom. And He Himself comes on the clouds of heaven because He Himself, though man, is heavenly. He's been received up into glory. That's our Savior, brothers and sisters. That's our Savior. And as we think of that, I hope that you can say you've got no controversy with this. I hope you can say confessedly, brother, right on as we used to say in the 70's. I see Kevin laughing. Hadn't heard that in a while, have you, brother? Right on, yes. We confess it. Why? Got no controversy with it. Why? I'll tell you one reason I want to have no controversy with it. Because if I have a controversy with this, God has a controversy with me. If I dissent from this truth, God's going to dissent from me. I'm going to stack arms. I'm going to throw up the white flag of surrender as Barnard used to say. I'm going to acknowledge this is the truth confessedly. Confessedly. Without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. And oh, may it, brothers and sisters, as we confess it, as we say, I've got no controversy with it. May it produce godliness in us. May you and I reflect the character of Him who is the center of this blessed message. Thank you so much, brother.